Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. It's Monday, the 15th of March. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. On tonight's show, Eric Enslin, CEO of FNB Private Wealth and RMB Private Bank, shares fascinating insights on how South Africa's wealthiest citizens have struggled in the era of COVID-19. Kathy Wood, manager of the world's largest actively traded exchange-traded fund on Tesla and other stock picks. Chris Forster, CEO of Stadio, on the tertiary education landscape and results. In the second half of the show, we've got Delphine Govender, chief investment officer of Perpetua Investment Managers, on Mr. Price's 460 million rand acquisition of Yuppie Chef. And South African scientist Dr. Tess Laurie, a medicines consultant who has been trying to convince the British government to use ivermectin to treat COVID-19. First, my business colleague Melanie Nathan brings us up to date with the business news headlines. Advertech, a private education company, expects headline earnings per share to be slightly higher for the year ended in December. Advertech CEO Roy Douglas said, One of the measures of a business's success is how robustly it responds to the unexpected. In the face of fluctuating challenges in 2020, Advertech came through with flying colours. Absurd or normalised headline earnings per share decreased by over 50% for the year ended in December. The bank did not declare a dividend. While our aspirations are unwavering and our strategic choices remain, the world in which we seek to achieve them has changed, said a company statement. Stadio Holdings, which focuses on higher education, says revenue increased along with student numbers in 2020, while it slipped into a headline loss. The group successfully financed the transfer of underlying businesses of Lysoff, Prestige Academy and Southern Business School into a single institution. Mr. Price Group has announced that it will purchase 100% of Yuppie Chef, a South African e-commerce business focused on home and kitchenware. The business has two primary divisions, Yuppie Chef Online and a separate wholesale division that develops and imports branded goods for wholesale distribution. Mr. Price says the purchase will give it access to a higher earning income base, enabling the growth of its market share through aspirational value spending. Sun International Group saw income cut by half to 6 billion rand for 2020. Adjusted headline earnings declined to a loss of 1 billion rand. The Namibian Competition Commission has imposed fines of over 20 million Namibian dollars on players in the insurance industry for price fixing. Among the companies investigated are Suntan Namibia and Hollard Insurance of Namibia, who admitted to unintentionally contravening the competition laws. Suntan will pay a fine of 15 million Namibian dollars, while Hollard pays a fine of 5.5 million dollars. Other companies are still being investigated. I'm Melanie Nathan, and that was your Biz News Flash Briefing. Justin Rowe Roberts follows the JSE and other markets for biznews.com. Justin, what were the main developments on the Johannesburg Exchange today? The JSE All Share Index was slightly down to 67,700. Diversified miner Exara was down over 5 rand on the day on the back of a worse than expected trading update and tumbling iron ore spot prices. It was a terrible day for the banking sector, with Standard Bank the biggest loser falling as much as 4% to 133 rand a share. Another down day for index heavyweights, NASPERS and PROCESS, as 10 cent fell over 3% in Hong Kong this morning. 
Naspersen Process will put you back 3,400 and 1,660 Rand a share, respectively. Mr. Price increased by over 7 Rand to 191 Rand a share on the back of news that the discretionary retailer would be acquiring Yapi Chef. In the currency markets, the Rand weakened against all the major currencies to 14 Rand and 94 cents against the greenback, 20 Rand and 77 cents against the pound, and 17 Rand and 82 cents against the euro. Gold is flat at $1,725 an ounce. Bitcoin is down 50,000 Rand on the day. One Bitcoin will put you back 850,000 Rand. Lastly, Brent crude is down at $68.50 a barrel. Charles Boerser covers investments for BizNews. He has the Chartered Financial Analyst CFA designation behind his name, which means he's an expert at dissecting the financial details of companies. With APSA's results out today, Charles has been examining the bank's value in relation to other banks. Charles, what's your assessment of APSA? Jackie, as we spoke last week, uh, we're making the distinction between intrinsic value and, and market value for all the banks. So what we at Business is doing is we looking at the share price, which is currently the APSA share price is currently 123, 132 Rand. And then we, we're taking accounting values, uh, economic values, statistics, and so on. And we determine a value which we think the company is fundamentally worth. And at the moment, uh, APSA is on our target price, 123 Rand 50 which puts at a slight discount of 6% to the current market price. But as we've said in previous shows, that is not enough of a, a margin of safety to buy the share. So we would, if we're holding it, we could continue holding it, and we would not be a buyer at this price. What kind of percentage do you need if 6% yes. is not enough? So, so for buying, uh, you're looking at a 20% discount for the intrinsic value. So let's say... If, for instance, um, you've got 100 Rand is your share price, then you're looking at uh, 80, 80 Rand. Uh, sorry, if you're looking at your intrinsic value is uh, 100 Rand, then your share price should be 80 Rand. And when do you sell when you're looking at this intrinsic value? Does it have to exceed a certain point or once it hits your value, is it a good time to sell the share? Yeah, so if it's if it's within the 20% ranges, bottom and top, it's you could sell. I did that with Aspen last week. Uh, but you could also hold on. Um, but if it's 20% above, so let's say your your intrinsic value is 20% above your price and you buy, and if it's 20% below your share price, then it's a good idea to sell. So, Charles, before we close off here, are you looking purely at the numbers in the financial reports when you decide on this value, or do you also look at uh, the business's activities and prospects? Yeah, so if you're a pure quantitative investor, you'd look at the numbers. In our case, I, I do qualitative uh, analysis as well. So I look at uh, what the company is doing. And in this case, just to give you an example, I think Standard Bank is a little bit better placed than APSA. Uh, one reason is What do you mean APSA, by better placed? Better value? Better, better placed uh, qualitatively uh, in terms of if you look at the – the um, comparison to APSA in terms of the retail business, I think it's better placed. APSA has been um, with the Barclays uh, disaggregation. They haven't spent enough management time, in my opinion, on the retail bank. And you can see uh, that Capitec is coming from below and also taking clients from APSA. And they're indicating in their results that they, they will focus on that, but I think they're a little bit behind the curve.
So you wouldn't um, be buying EBSA this week, Charles? I wouldn't. It's uh, the target price and uh, intrinsic value are essentially the same. And uh, so there's no margin of safety in my opinion. That was Charles Boerter, who covers investments for BizNews. You're listening to the BizNews Power Hour with Jackie Cameron. COVID-19 containment measures have hammered the South African economy, pushing many businesses to the brink of collapse and leading to widespread job losses. The problems have also been felt acutely among South Africa's wealthier citizens. Earlier, I spoke to Eric Enslin, CEO of FNB Private Wealth and RMB Private Bank. He told me South Africa's pool of higher net worth individuals is shrinking. Yo, Jackie, I can tell you many stories, right? So um, um, it was, um, to be honest, quite hectic on, on, on many fronts. And I suppose I'll give you an overview and then sort of the, the downside and also some positive sides that, 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 that we've seen. You know, like in anything, I suppose it's, um, there's also some opportunity and, and, and positive news. But um, what's interesting, contrary to what I think a lot of um, people expected in the market, is that often people think if you have a crisis like a sort of a COVID or even debt or whatever the case might be, people think that the wealth market is resilient um, and you're not impacted, right? So, so, and I think from a South African context, that's very far from the truth. So, because um, it depends, and one need to understand that. So, in the South African context, the bulk of our private wealth market are are self-employed people. So, so I think you can categorize people as, as salaried, self-employed, and then there's a high proportion of the age category. If you look at the client segments, the private wealth things tend to be have, have a higher age bracket as well, right? So so if you then contextualize it, even before COVID, there were lots of strain. If you think of the econ- economic growth, lower interest rate environment, which was just sort of fast-tracked with COVID. So if you a retiree person that lived of investment income, be it interest or dividends, and, and even more so dividends, because of many companies have, 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 have not paid dividends based on the back of COVID and have to preserve their balance sheets, etc. Suddenly, your income had a big drop, right? So, so if you think of at some point last year, I did just for myself some calculations and, and interest rates from January to sort of the end of, of the year fell more than 30%. So you have a drop of 30% in your income. So, so it impacted the retiree market a lot. And then the self-employed market, um, I think from a wealth perspective, what we see now, post-COVID, we've done some internal sort of analysis, and I think the wealth market from a self-employed will take the longest to recover. We think anything between 9 and 13 months for clients to recover in terms of their income. So what we've seen with COVID, depending on the industries, a lot of the wealthy clients had to go and sort of access their personal savings or personal funding or, or, or nest eggs to actually keep their businesses afloat, right? I had many, many conversations with extremely wealthy people um, and successful people that, that can withstand sort of this COVID thing, but what they had to do is they had to gear their personal balance sheets, access personal investments, to cater and keep their businesses afloat, right? So, so often people think of the wealthy market and you don't make that connection of, of 
um, subsidizing their business, making sure their salary, their staff has salaries, etc. So, so that was the one dynamic from a finance perspective. And then, obviously, you had um, even before COVID playing out in terms of. Fortunately, our, our, our currency sort of strengthened and then weakened again. So, so we had this notion of the last three years of of clients exporting capital to 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 abroad. So, so, so that was continuing. And in many instances, fast track to the to the extent that people could. And Eric, we've heard a lot about uh, property repossessions, even at the top end of the market. Are you seeing that in your books? Are you seeing that you you actually having to come after some of your clients who were once incredibly wealthy and were among that sort of echelon of society that seems to be untouchable from a, from a wealth point of view? Now, fortunately, Jackie, fortunately not that we've seen it now, sort of. Um, Increasing more so, more more than ever, right? So what we also try to do on the private banking and on on, on the business side, because because it's never in our favour to, I think, not only us but in any bank's favour, despite what people might think, to to go through a legal process of repossessing properties and then going sell it on 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 in in a in a for sale environment, and you don't get the values that that you should. So as far as possible. We try to to rehabilitate and work with clients, and that's where we, um, you know we had we had double digit plus numbers of where we assisted our wealthy clients, private banking clients, no different to our other clients in terms of COVID relief on the business and personal side. So, so just um, to be clear, is that giving people mortgage or home loan holidays and, and debt holidays? Can you elaborate yeah, a bit yeah, on the kinds yeah. of things you were doing for your clients there? Yeah. No, for sure, and and it and it's very also industry specific. Um, sometimes it's difficult and tough because because um, you know sometimes these clients have depleted already everything that they have. And let's assume you are in take an example in in a tourism industry and and there's no foreseeable bookings, etc. You know, at, you know, how long do you keep that boat afloat? So so we try to we try to work with the clients, but but just back to your question. Fortunately, I haven't seen a notable increase um, in 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 our defaults from a repossession or whatever, even before, now versus during versus pre 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 COVID. And is it your sense that the pool of high net worth individuals in South Africa is shrinking or growing? Mm-hmm. And by what no, percentage? It's definitely, definitely shrinking. Um, so so and again, it's a fluid number, but if you so a couple of things influence that, and that's a very, very interesting topic. And then often people need to understand, okay, so why does it actually also matter? So so obviously that's a, a big tax base if you think about if you think about that. For me, in the context of the bulk of the self-employed, ach, the bulk of the wealth clients in South Africa is self-employed, so it also is a bit of a proxy of your economic growth. So if your wealth market is growing and the bulk of your wealth market is self-employed, it tells me that there's economic growth happening. Um, it's also a function of, of a big factor of, of, of wealth is, is property values in South Africa and also investment. So it's a proxy of how well our investment and property market is growing. So if you then flip it around, unfortunately, Jackie, is that um, for the last two years, and and I think, and that was even pre-COVID, right? Um, but even more so now, and and we predicting at least for the next two to three years that 
um, our, our wealth market will stay sort of flat and maybe even go negative because of investment markets, property markets, very little economic growth. Um, and if you think about if you if you go back 25 years plus, um, a lot high percentage of the wealth markets were salary people, um, many of them in, in successful parastatals, etc. But corporate South Africa and that whole scene have changed quite a bit, right? So, so, so and that's why it flipped around. Um, I, I remember at some point, salaried people constituted at 60 to 65% of, of the wealth market, and it's now under 50%. So, so you can just also show you how that has flipped. And I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. It's maybe a good thing that it's self-employed people because that create jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So, so the market is, is, is going backwards not by a lot, but it's definitely not growing. And before we close off here, one of the big issues is land expropriation without compensation. And President Ramaphosa promised that he's going to push this through Parliament. He seems to have support for it. A lot of people in the business community don't seem to think it's a, as big a deal as some of the political analysts. How are you factoring in the distinct probability that we're going to see land expropriation without compensation into your longer-term business plans? Yeah, so, so again, I suppose, you know, from, and I can just sort of comment on, on, on what we on a wider bank, and, and I'm not personally involved in that forum, but our, our st- stance on these type of things, right? In, in, in a philosophical way, it's no different to, to I, I recall a month, a month and a half, two months ago, I had two or three media agencies, journalists want to chat to me about wealth tax and, and how are we going to factor that in and there's going to be this tax on that and that tax on this. And and, and, and similarly, my view is on this expropriation um, context. Um, we have many agricultural clients in, in, in our private wealth business and private bank um, and very successful. And funny enough, they also have different views on these things, right? So, so how we... We engage around it. So, so is it a possibility? Yes. Do we know the permutations? We we don't. Um, but we engage via the industry bodies. So we can't. We can't. Um, you know, there's a saying. Um, if you, ninety nine percent of the things you worry about don't come play out the way way it plays out. Right. Mm. <laughs> Forgive me. I don't know that same quote. So, so what we're saying is participate proactively in an engaging way to try and solve and come to a solution for all parties. That's our bank's approach to these things. That was Eric Enslin, CEO of FNB Private Wealth and RMB Private Bank, speaking to me, Jackie Cameron of BizNews. Coming up, Kathy Wood has been described as the fund manager of the moment. Her firm, ARC, manages a suite of exchange-traded funds, with portfolios of equities around the theme of disruption. On the back of spectacular returns, its flagship ARK Innovation ETF is now the largest actively managed ETF in the world. In this interview with Bloomberg, she provides an update on her team's stock ideas, and she's a big fan of Elon Musk, so she picks up on Tesla too. Take a listen. Well, we keep our eye on the prize. We have a five-year time horizon, and... Actually, when when we go through a a route like this, first of all, the rotation now is happening very quickly. It started off slowly and is happening quickly. Uh, So I'm happy that the market is broadening out. This This was the case in late 16 as well. Value took off 
and left growth behind. And whenever I see that happen, I say, okay, this bull market has broadened out. This is good news. What we do during these periods is concentrate our portfolios towards our highest conviction names. Uh, And so that's what we're doing. We had uh, extended the number of names in the portfolio from the low to mid 30s at the bottom of the coronavirus. And now we're at roughly 55 for our flagship fund. And we are starting to sell the more liquid names and buy some of the more pure play names. So the the more liquid names are either more mature, the the Facebooks, the Apples, uh, and so forth, or uh, and uh, or they are um, uh, participating in innovation, but they're not pure plays. So Regeneron, uh, Novartis, and so forth. So more liquid, in order to have cash-like instruments to use at a time like now, and move again, concentrate towards our highest conviction names. So let's talk about Tesla then. You said that uh, you were only going to buy the dip. Are you going to continue to buy the the Tesla dip now that it's dipping even lower? Yes, we can buy a a stock up to 10% of our portfolios. Uh, And that's certainly in the ETFs. We report our holdings at the end of every day. uh, So anyone can see that. And yes, uh, we have been building whenever we can. Now, we built up to 10% last week. So... uh, the stock behaved in line with our portfolio. So uh, again, we can't buy any more here. Uh, if it were to deteriorate at a rate uh, beyond that of our other portfolios, so drop below that 10%, uh, we would then have the latitude to, to buy more, of course. Now, you've said you're going to put out a new Tesla price target. The market is anxiously waiting for that. When are we going to see that? Can you give us an idea of what the target will be? Well, uh, it's going to be uh, in, I'm going to say, a couple of weeks. We're getting compliance uh, is helping us cross our T's, dot our I's, and do everything we should do before we, uh, before we send it out. Uh, but the two things that have happened to Tesla since our last uh, uh, projections are, one, uh, it has increased its market share. Uh, when we put out our original um, $4,000 uh, uh, price targets, so the equivalent of $800 now, uh, we thought that, uh, that Tesla's share would drop from 17%. T- this is share of the electric vehicle market, global electric vehicle market, from 17% then to 11%. Instead, its share increased as others with wonderful brand names started increasing the number of uh, electric vehicles uh, in in their companies, so that that was a big big wake up in the United States. I think uh, Tesla, through the third quarter at least, uh, was still eighty percent of all electric vehicles sold in the United States. So pretty stunning. The second thing that has happened is autonomous. Are the probability that Tesla gets autonomous right, uh, we believe, has increased from the thirty percent that we had in our base case uh, in our last model. Uh, So 
what's interesting about autonomous is the margins in autonomous, the gross margins are in the 80% range. The margins for electric vehicles alone uh, are in the 25 to 30% range. This is a five-year projection. Uh, so the model changes completely if uh, Tesla gets autonomous right. And we think it will. Okay. Now, as I said earlier, it, look, ARC came back even stronger after the big pandemic shock, but we seem to be in a totally different environment right now. Right now, this seems to be happening because of rising yields. How do you come back even stronger this time? Oh, well, truth wins out. Uh, we know that uh, our focus on disruptive innovation uh, is going to be very productive. We're, we're focused on five platforms involving 14 technologies, all of which are moving into exponential growth trajectories. And beyond that, uh, many of these technologies are converging. So autonomous taxi networks are comprised of three technologies or three platforms, robotics, Autonomous vehicles are robots. Uh, electric, they will be electric. It's Electric is going to be the cheapest uh, way to go. And uh, artificial intelligence, they will be powered by artificial intelligence. Now, uh, those are three S-curves coming together, and we think they're going to cause explosive and highly profitable growth. Uh, and I don't think most research departments are set up to uh, focus on innovation this way. They're very siloed, specialized. Uh, we're focused on platforms. They're focused on sectors. Um, and we're focused on the 14 different technologies associated with those platforms. These S-curves are going to collide and, and create so much positive energy that we think analysts, traditional analysts especially, are going to be uh, gobsmacked, shall I say, by how powerful okay. these are going to be. Yeah. I'm curious, Kathy, what's your relationship with Elon Musk? How much contact do you have with him? What kind of conversations have you had? Any fun and crazy stories? No, we did our, our, our podcast. Actually, the way we do our research is uh, uh, we will speak with IR. We don't want any special treatment, but we have a five-year time horizon. And so we are really asking more technology questions than anything about the short term. So you can see from the podcast, I think March of 19, as the stock was cascading downward, uh, we had a fat, fantastic, Tasha Kini and I had a fantastic uh, podcast with Elon. And that that uh, podcast is evergreen because, again, we're talking about long-term time horizons. So you'll see how brilliant he is and how focused he is. Uh, on on Tesla. And we did talk uh, about the crypto uh, decision, the decision to shift some cash into crypto. Uh, certainly, we were fully supportive of that. Uh, any uh, company on the right side of change uh, should, should do uh, diversify in that way. That was Kathy Wood, the force behind the world's largest actively managed ETF, the ARK Innovation ETF. Delphine Govender is Chief Investment Manager of South Africa's Perpetua Investment Managers. Earlier today, I caught up with her about Mr. Price after the retail, retailer's share price perked up on news that it has snapped up Yuppie Chef, which sells upmarket homeware. It, sold, it bought Yuppie Chef for the equivalent of 1% of its market capitalization, or about 460 million rand. Take a listen. 
Delphine, a lot of excitement on Twitter today on the news that Mr. Price has bought a yuppie chef. Can you tell us why this is such good news for some people? I think, you know, what we're seeing at the moment in in retail in general, whether globally or locally in South Africa, is that we're really seeing that there's an importance for what we know as traditional retail, the the physical or now as it's called offline retail, um, to really lay down, you know, its path for how it plans to compete in a world that looks quite different. Many of the trends in terms of embracing online or an e-commerce strategy or omni-channel, all the terms, you know, used to describe the retail or, or the selling that is not in a physical store. So what was important was, and the excitement was, here's a well-known online retailer, predominantly Japi Chef, that's now being uh, purchased by a very well-known, you know, physical retailer. Not that Mr. Price doesn't have a strong online offering, um, but here, you know, we're two quite important brands. And even though Yappy Chef's a fraction of the size of Mr. Price, it's, it's a well-known brand from in terms of the online space. And so I think that was the excitement. It's really, it's it's more of an indicator that, you know, the traditional retailers are making moves and it's important for investors to see that. Do you think that Mr. Price is a good investment proposition right now? Well, I think the point about, you know, an answering that is multifaceted. You know, we look at, when we look to invest, as investors, bearing in mind, everybody's got slightly different bases for investment. Some just, you know, want prices to rise quickly. Some want to invest in, in real businesses that are compounding over periods of time. But I think the one thing that's common is, you know, very very few investors are not wanting to invest in in growing businesses that are solid, that are run by decent management, that have, you know, good governance and that are doing, you know, good in the community and not in terms of, you know, with, in terms of ESG and, and those sorts of lenses. So as you look at Mr. Price, um, you, you, so you make a case for the investment. And I think um, what they have been very good at and what we've seen over the you know several years that they've been around, they have been the benefit of a business that really was built from scratch. It was a blank sheet business that you know really scripted the, their rights to win, which is very much value retailing in the South African market. And they've been unequivocal in the way they pursued that opportunity set and have clearly been incredibly successful in the process from zero market share to the sort of market share we see them having today in apparel, home, and then in the other categories that they're operating. So they've clearly demonstrated they have been able to produce growth. This transaction with Yappy Chef, a recent purchase not so long ago of Power Fashion, um, underlines that they're still a growth proposition. The question then simply becomes, um, what price are investors paying for this growth? And is it a reasonable price, given that we saw last year there are clearly cyclical components? You know, this is there's still a cyclical company. It's still ultimately, um, despite whatever the actions management take, it will still be subject to the whims of the South African economy. Um, and so ultimately, a strong domestic consumer, since the majority of Mr. Price's sales are in South Africa, majority for cash, um, it's a higher volume retailer, it sells lots of items. So it really depends on the structure of, of, of the economy and, and the health of South African consumer. So in the absence of, of there being some sort of belief that, that the South African consumer's health will continue to improve and the economy will continue to grow, that might be an ultimate you know, cap on any cyclical retailer or any semi-durable retailer in South Africa. But at the moment, it's quite fully priced. And I think so meaning that it's trading on a historic price earnings multiple of over 20 times and a forward multiple meaning to next year's earnings of around 17. So that's quite a, a, a full PE in the context of the South African stock market. But I think it's reflective of the fact that the market is giving this business because it has a proven track record of delivering growth. And now with transactions like this, they're giving this business the benefit of the doubt that they will continue to place the right bets to continue to deliver growth going forward. So if you buy Mr. Price now, you're probably not buying it at a bargain, but it could grow in the long run. 
Well, that's the thing. I think the bargain price was last year this time, you know, almost exactly a year ago or in April, May last year when the share price was in the low hundreds. It's now recovered all the way up to almost 190 rand. Um, and I guess that was true for many South African retailers. You know, we could speak about the likes of MassMart that was, you know, under 20 rand uh, about a year ago um, or eight to 10 months ago. Now is you know, three times higher. Um, so the point is that it's not a bargain price. But if you are a believer that this business will continue to grow, it will earn. It's being priced for the growth that, that the market believes um, it is capable of delivering based on their track record of having delivered it and based on the spaces that they operate in, which seem to be better suited to the structural and cyclical trends that the market can support, such as, you know, well-priced value items, which is more affordable to the general uh, consumer a big focus on, you know, casual wear. That's not just formal wear, given that we're seeing trends away from formalization and towards casualization in terms of apparel, clothing, a big trend in terms of growth in the homeware space as many people have spent a lot of time at home in the last year and are likely to continue to spend more time, you know, going forward. I think the Yappy Chef acquisition is particularly interesting because they bought a range that is not exactly in line with the current target market of Mr. Price because it's much more upper end, quite niched. And, and, and clearly mainly online, although they, they have grown a lot, Yappy Chef has with their physical stores. So I think what it does do in line with Mr. Price's strategy, it does bring now a slightly more niched upper end premium component to their homewares vertical that um, that they had indicated they were looking to expand into. And I guess the, the idea would be what is Yappy Chef worth more in Mr. Price's hands? And to the extent that the market believes that that's the case, then this would mean that this could be, you know, another source of growth. So, for example, Yappy Chef has opened seven stores in the last couple of years, but for the first 10 to 12 years of their existence, they were entirely online. And the growth in their physical stores has really contributed to sales. So perhaps Mr. Price would want to grow a few more stores while at the same time, you know, really growing the online, expanding the product ranges that are sold on Yappy Chef's websites, perhaps expanding Mr price to a much more niche customer that it previously has sold to. Delphine, before we close off here, lots of pictures of the Yuppie Chef founders, Shane Dryden and Andrew Smith, looking very happy, cracking open the bubbly. Was this a good price for them, do you think? Well, I think it's all relative. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how much they've invested in the business from 2006. I would think that um, it's probably been through ups and downs. Over the years, um, they've quite well quoted for having said when they launched their 2018 first physical store at the waterfront that I think they got to a million rand in sales in, a, in, in one or two months there, whereas it took them two full years to get to a million rand in sales on, in, in their online offering. Um, so the, the truth is that, but at the same time, you know, they, they went on quite an aggressive physical store rollout strategy in 2018, 2019, and I guess COVID hit, and probably that uh, disrupted, I, I would assume, some of the you know the expectations for how they would have thought their stores would have traded last year. Um, but I would have thought that you know at the at the the the, the sale price of around what seems to be about four hundred million rand, this would have been a decent um, return for them. Given that I would assume over the years they would have had external investors that would have come in, and hopefully they didn't sell too much of their equity in the process. Um, but I would assume in their individual capacity, this would be a decent return, and, and perhaps they have every right to be smiling. You've been listening to Delphine Govender, Chief Investment Officer at Perpetua Investment Managers. We've been chatting about the Mr. Price acquisition of Yuppie Chef. It's a very warm welcome to Chris Forster, CEO of Stadia, the higher education group spun out of Curro. Chris, you reported a 10% growth in student numbers, which looks good, but unfortunately a loss of about 140 million from a healthy profit the year before. What happened? 
Yes, uh, good afternoon, Jackie, and thank you for the opportunity. I think we should just see that um, in numbers in context. Um, it's uh, basically due to a fair value adjustment that we had to make uh, uh, regarding our CA Connect acquisition. Um, and that was due to the outperformance of especially the, the postgraduate diploma in accounting, uh, which just kept on growing uh, as we speak. Uh, very exciting in the long term for us going forward. But it meant that uh, we underprovided for that um, uh, business and the growth in, 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 in the business. My colleague Justin Roberts has a question for you. He's in our Johannesburg studio. If I could just perhaps quickly uh, add to that, if one include yeah, sure. the the CA Connect um, fair value adjustment, we actually see EBITDA growth of twenty nine percent for the twenty twenty year. Chris, another company in um, the PSG stable, Curro, lost learners during twenty twenty. Stadio managed to increase their learner base by 10%, which is honestly incredible. What what were the keys to that success? Um, Justin, I think it's um, it's been our focus, I think, on our distance learning. One will see if uh, we look at the numbers, the distance learning showed growth of more than 12%, actually. And I think um, a lot of learners felt more comfortable in taking up distance learning during the COVID period rather than the traditional contact learning at, uh, at a campus. Chris, you state in your presentation that you want to create a new culture. Why do you want a new culture? What's wrong with the current culture? Uh, Starting with a very uh, young business, um, in 2017 we acquired six brands, we then uh, decided uh, last year to migrate and basically consolidate four of the six brands in Stadio Higher Education. And obviously having four different institutions now becoming one, we have to establish a new Stadio culture and uh, really aligning all our resources as well as our uh, staff and and. Um, uh, a vision, you know, t- towards the new vision of the new Stadio Art Education Institution and not um, uh, still entertaining the old cultures of the different brands. Because it's quite difficult to change a culture. It's one thing to How are you actually going to do that? Yes, definitely. Um, I think uh, the biggest challenge for us is obviously change management and then to get everybody's buy-in on our new vision and where are we going with the business? If you get all your, 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 your stuff aligned to the new vision, it actually becomes much easier to do so. And your vision, does that include international expansion? Yes, Jackie. Uh, we already have quite a number of international agreements um, in the three different brands. Uh, but very much so. Um, we're looking at offering joint degrees. Um with universities both in Europe, America, and we are also in the process of uh, finalizing agreements with institutions in India as well. Sorry, can I just get clarity? Are you going to offer your degrees in those countries or will they be offering their degrees as joint programs in South Africa? Uh, Joint programs currently in South Africa as well as in those countries where those qualifications will be offered and obviously using that then as a base to move into the rest of Europe as well as India, uh, perhaps in the future. 
So that suggests that some countries really value South African qualifications and South African education. Which courses are you taking to the international market? Uh, currently, um, it's more our postgraduate offerings, and it's the, mainly the, the um, master's degrees in management, uh, policing, as well as the postgraduate. Uh, the doctorate degrees, uh, sorry, as well as in management and policing. Policing, which countries want our police expertise? Uh, we're um, very far with negotiations to take our policing qualifications to India. Okay. Yet we have a very bad record in South Africa of putting the crooks behind bars. <laughs> yeah, these qualifications that we offer is very much management focus. Um, and it is uh, equipping the, uh, the management of the SAPS and um, managing their resources. And it's not purely uh, policing qualifications in the sense of uh, police uh, investigation skills and so forth. A lot of international universities are expecting an uptick in master's students and PhD students because of the uh, huge onslaught on the global economy amid COVID-19 containment measures. And so a lot of young people want to sit out the economic fallout from COVID-19. Are you also expecting to benefit from that? We already see um, an increase in uh, applications, especially in our postgraduate programs. So, yes, uh, there is a tendency um, that more and more students are considering postgraduate studies at the moment. And on your website, you emphasize that you have this objective of widening access to higher education. How do you factor in previously disadvantaged learners into this private model? Now, very important for us, the widening access drive. We really believe that gives us a, a differentiating factor. Um, focusing on students who previously were excluded due to various reasons. And uh, the important things that we are looking at uh, to address this widening of access is definitely our distance learning offerings at uh, affordable pricing and still making sure that we offer a great student uh, experience and, and quality of um, the qualifications that we offer. We heard from Pete Mouton, uh, who is the head of the holding company that holds Stadia, that it's not just people from traditionally disadvantaged backgrounds who have been struggling to pay their fees. Have you been finding that your clients have been struggling to pay the fees in the current environment? Yes, definitely. Especially during the hard lockdown period, we saw um, a lot of students running into difficulty in, in, in making their tuition payments. But I must say, uh, at the end of the year, the situation looked much better. And we see a lot of students still willing to pay, but they just need additional time to do so. Um, so generally, not too concerned about uh, bad debt at this stage. And what happens when a student can't pay? Do you uh, eventually write off the debt? Do you take them to court? What's your current policy? No, uh, we've actually introduced quite a number of um, possibilities or options for our students so that they can continue bringing in uh, different payment plans, uh, uh, offering them terms as well as extended time uh, uh, peer paying uh, periods. And then we also carry over some of the outstanding fees from a previous academic year to the next academic year, all to try and assist them to continue with their studies.
Now, South Africa is bracing for a nationwide university shutdown, and there's a lot of uh, unrest building up at universities. How does that affect your operation? Yeah, obviously, it's a, it's a very sad case uh, currently in the industry. Uh, we're observing the situation um, thus far. Uh, our students are still unaffected. I think something very important to note here is that the private institutions do not receive any subsidies, nor do we qualify for any NASFAS bursaries. And therefore, um, a lot of these unrest, um, you know, we are not directly involved in not receiving or receiving a reduced subsidy from government. So you're not going to be affected in any way by the, the unrest? Uh, yeah, as I say, we're monitoring the situation. Currently, it's, uh, it's no effect yet, but, uh, you know, we have to be ready for anything. Chris, my colleague Justin Rowe Roberts, who follows Johannesburg stock, uh, stocks with a view to in, uh, giving investment ideas to our listeners, has a question for you. But before uh, I pass the mic to him, I just wanted to ask you, how do you plan to unlock more value for your shareholders? What are your plans? I think um, this morning in our uh, results presentation, I, I try to make it clear that this uh, t- the year 2020-2021 is really our consolidation phase and where we're building the foundations. We believe that we're doing the right things now in really building a solid foundation for the growth, um, continuous and sustainable growth to come in from 2022 uh, going forward and us reaching our target of 56,000 students by 2026. Chris, your closest competitor, um, Advertech, released an upbeat trading statement today. What's the investments um, investment thesis for Stadio over a company like Advertech? You know, Justin, I don't want to talk about our competitors. We can only do what we do uh, and do that do that well. I think um, our focus is definitely on our fundamentals, uh, getting that right, and um, you know the rest will follow. We uh, we're very excited about the space. Uh, we think we're very well positioned with our investments and infrastructure that we've built, especially for on our distance learning. Um, very strongly positioned, and then. Um, also with the, the construction of our mega campus uh, there in the Gauteng area, which um, we still believe there's a, a need for contact learning, especially for school viewers. They want to be part of a student uh, community, uh, have student life. And uh, I think in a post-COVID world, you know, that demand will still be there. And lastly, Chris, there's talks of a rights issue in order to fund growth. Could you delve into this? No, that's not that's not on the cards currently. Uh, again, as um, stated in our presentation this morning, we um, we are comfortable with completing the Centurion site without going out on a rights issue, and then we will have a conservative approach. We will see. What happens at that campus? Will we get uh, big numbers of students registering before we will consider uh, the construction of the other mega campus here in uh, Western Cape? You've been listening to Chris Forster, CEO of Stadio, the private higher education group. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour with Jackie Cameron. 
Coming up, Dr. Tess Laurie, a South African scientist who works in Bath, England, has been collating evidence that ivermectin can significantly reduce the impact of COVID-19 in the UK. Earlier, she spoke to Business founder Alec Hogg about her research and her efforts to get the message through to the British government to consider ivermectin for treatment in a country that has Europe's highest death rate. Hear what she has to say. A warm welcome to Dr. Tess Laurie, uh, originally from South Africa, but making waves in the UK where she is at the moment. Uh, Dr. Laurie, before we go into the whole story of ivermectin and your vi- video that went viral, I did. I see that you did originally study at WITS. Yes, I did. Yeah, I grew up in Durban, and then I went to Joburg to study um, my undergrad degree. And what what are you doing in the UK? Um, Well, I have a company called the Evidence-Based Medicine Consultancy, which I started in 2013, Um, because I have a medical background as well as a research background, and I have, in the last decade, done more research-based work, and I'm no longer clinically working at all. So you Um, did work in hospitals in South Africa before going to... Yes, I did. I worked in many, many hospitals in South Africa, so, you know, I trained at Barra, Joburg Jan, and Helen Joseph... um, and then I also worked at Fritoskia, um, I worked at Tigerberg, <laughs> um, I kind of moved around because after studying in Johannesburg, I moved to Cape Town and started a family there. And then uh, 10 years ago, we moved, um, well, it's more than 10 years now, but uh, we moved to the UK. The whole field of medical research is uh, fraught with lots of controversy because you have big pharma with obvious vested interests. Yes, well... Um, I think I am becoming aware, very much aware of the um, the role that big farmers playing at the moment, um, because we're having such difficulty getting the uh, science on ivermectin heard. Um, there's so much research done on ivermectin, and uh, you know it ranges from from uh, randomised controlled trials, systematic reviews. There are four systematic reviews on ivermectin at the moment. Um, that are are not accessible on so so three of them are on preprint servers, including ours, and there is one that seems to have just disappeared, so it's no longer available on its um, on on its uh, registered link. So um, so the reviews are are not getting published, and then but there's also there's many many randomised trials, there's many observational uh, controlled trials, and there's also many observational studies. Um, and it just seems all we ever get in the press, certainly in the UK, is um, is news on um, on new um, pharmaceutical drugs, novel treatments. So even today, there's been two. Um, there's one on a new monoclonal antibody treatment called Ver seven eight three one, which it says is for people with mild to moderate disease. The evidence it says has emerged a profound efficiency. GSK said. And they say uh, it reduces COVID hospital admissions and deaths among high-risk patients by 85%. Um, you know, as someone who works with evidence all the time, and here we're sitting with a mountain of evidence in ivermectin, this is a newspaper article declaring that this, this new drug reduces deaths by 
And uh, so they're, they're seeking, the company's seeking an emergency use authorization in the U.S. and thinking of applying for U.K. regulatory approval. I mean, just the fact that it, it just seems, and this is just one of many many such reports that come across the newspapers lately, and it's always, um, you know, there's always this, this new drug that's, that it seems like these, these drugs are getting approved just on, uh, you know, a newspaper report, <laughs> you know. So it's it's a highly confusing time as a scientist because um, we just can't get um, this wonderful, effective, safe, and very cheap treatment heard. Uh, you know, we we can't get an audience with the authorities. Um, I get um, I send uh, evidence to the ministers of parliament, and um, I get a standard letter back saying we're waiting for high quality evidence or something. It's not even signed by one of the ministers. It's just a sort of a, if I'm lucky, I get that kind of a reply. So there's a strange thing where the politicians are telling me uh, or and, and evidence experts that there's no evidence, and it doesn't matter how we package the evidence, we can't seem to get them to look at it or accept um, our uh, appraisal of it. Um, so very, very curious times. So your focus... But unfortunately, people are, are, are dying. Your uh, focus on, on research. Mm-hmm. How did you come across ivermectin and the impact that it has on COVID-19 patients? It was really interesting and and, uh, quite exciting at the time because um, I hadn't really been paying much attention to COVID the last year. It's not my area of, it's not the area that I'm usually working in. I do a lot of work in reproductive health and I've done recently, for a few years I've been working on a series of brain tumor reviews. So, you know, the type of work that I do is, is research methods. So you apply, you can apply this to any topic, you know. Um, but I hadn't really engaged with um, COVID research at all and had no intention really of doing so. But um, I came across Pierre Corey's review and his appeal to the State Senate. I thought I would just evaluate the evidence um, and do a meta-analysis because it was between Christmas and New Year. You've probably heard this story. Um, and uh, I knew everyone was on holiday. And I thought well, I could just do extract the data and, and just see if, if there's anything if there's anything to it, uh, if I could synthesize the evidence. Uh, if there was anything there, then I could get it off sooner rather than later to the authorities, and then I could uh, walk away and get on with my work. So I did it, and, and I found um, very exciting results because the evidence showed that and probably substantially reduces deaths due to COVID and improves um, is to clinical improvement and prevents deterioration, and and also that it uh, prevents um, COVID infections amongst healthcare workers and also COVID contacts. So, and this was really exciting. You know, it was staggering, uh, staggering numbers. Really, you were talking sort of eighty eight percent reductions in infection rates and so on. So, I thought this would be very good news to the authorities, and um, <clears throat> so I, um, but I, I couldn't really get the message across. So after a few days, I thought I started my. I sort of moved from feeling fairly excited about conveying the information to feeling rather despondent and increasingly concerned that um, I couldn't communicate the message effectively. And so that's why I did the short video to try and reach somebody uh, in in the high office. But I didn't. Um, I didn't succeed. Were you surprised and, uh, about by the way that the video went viral? Certainly here in South Africa. 
Uh, Dr. Tess Laurie is a well-known name now because of your ivermectin uh, <laughs> appeal. I didn't realize it went viral because it only got 2,000 views or something on YouTube. So I certainly did not know that it went viral. Um, and nobody here seemed to know about it. So um, I, I was pleased to hear that. But I still found it rather incredible because uh, the YouTube, it didn't really show that it had been viewed much. It might well have been viewed elsewhere or with copies. or uh, One just knows that in South Africa, ivermectin is a word that Many people know. However, uh, on social media, it seems anybody who talks about this drug, this very cheap drug, uh, finds that whatever they they post is removed, which is also rather strange, I guess, to a scientist. Yeah, it's, uh, the whole thing is just um, uh, is just amazing. You know, there's almost a in, in, in the scientific world, there's almost a reverse um, publication bias. So publication bias is something that, you know, like previously journals would publish, they'd have a bias towards public, publishing studies that showed positive findings because they would find no one would, would really be interested in studies that had negative findings. Um, so that's you always look out for publication bias. But the weird thing with ivermectin is that you get negative studies being published in prominent journals. For example, last week there was a, a negative trial published in JAMA, which was widely publicized in the press as well. <laughs> and yet uh, positive studies still sit on preprint servers without being able to find a home. And systematic reviews get cancelled at the last minute. And well, we struggle to publish them, and they're very good uh, sources of evidence. They are the highest level of evidence you can get, a systematic review. Um, and uh, the systematic reviews are all in agreement that ivermectin has a substantial effect uh, and could make a substantial impact on the pandemic. So, <laughs> um, so it's just very curious, uh, is what I can say, you know. And the kickback that one's seeing from governments uh, here in South Africa, it's been with reluctance that ivermectin has been allowed to be used. Well, I think um, I think it's a great tragedy that's really unfolding at the moment with, um, you know, the fact that we have something that's so cheap and effective and um, and that people are being, they're not get, gaining access to it. So, uh, you know, at the very least, um, there's an ignorance that needs to be overcome. And, uh, one, you know, one wouldn't want to think that, that there could be, uh, you know, interference for any other reason. Dr. Tess Laurie, thank you for your time today. Tess Laurie, a South African scientist who works in England, telling BizNews founder Alec Hogg about why it's so important for governments to take ivermectin seriously as a treatment against COVID-19. My colleague Justin Rowe Roberts in our Johannesburg studio follows the JSE and other markets for biznews.com. Justin, what were the main developments today? The JSE All Share Index was slightly down to 67,700. Diversified miner Exaro was down over 5 rand on the day on the back of a worse than expected trading update and tumbling iron ore spot prices. It was a terrible day for the banking sector, with Standard Bank the biggest loser falling as much as 4% to 133 rand a share. Another down day for index heavyweights Naspers and Process, as Tencent fell over 3% in Hong Kong this morning. Naspers and Process will put you back 3,400 and 1,660 Rand respectively. Mr. Price increased by over 7 Rand to 191 Rand a share, on the back of the news that the discretionary retailer would be acquiring Yuppie Chef. In the currency markets, the Rand weakened against all the major currencies to 14 Rand and 94 cents against the greenback. 
20 rand and 77 cents against the pound and 17 rand and 82 cents against the euro. Gold is flat at $1,725 an ounce. Bitcoin is down 50,000 rand on the day. One Bitcoin will put you back 850,000 rand. Lastly, Brent crude is down at $68.50 a barrel. And that's all we've got time for here on the Biz News Power Hour. From me, Jackie Cameron, and the rest of the Biz News team, thank you for joining us. We'll be back here on Fine Music Radio FM and DSTV Channel 838 at the same time tomorrow. You can also catch up on all the episodes of the Biz News Power Hour on Spotify. Until next time. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.